One announcement that I did supposed to make earlier and even had a prop here in my face to remind me and didn't do it. Uh, we're taking uh, donations. Uh, normally we have a, a, a tree in the back. I don't think we have a tree, do we? Is there a tree back there? Oh, okay. Uh, last I looked, there wasn't a tree, but it, 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 it appeared from somewhere. But uh, go ahead and put it in that area. We'll take that for several weeks yet into, into January. But we donate to the uh, rescue mission. We're, they're one of our regular uh, uh, missions that we support. And uh, this time of year, uh, we know that uh, socks and warm clothing, such as coats and hats and gloves, blankets, uh, blankets go a long way in that uh, ministry. And we'd like to be a part of that. We've, we've always taken usually several big uh, trash bags full of clothes. Uh, just about every year we take a, several trash bags of clothes over there, mainly because that's the easy way to carry it. But uh, uh, if you want to participate in that, feel free to do that and just set it back in the, in the back room near the tree. So we're continuing with this year's Advent series that we have been doing over the last years. And uh, I'll be speaking this morning on Jesus cares more about our, our heart than our behavior. Over the last few weeks, Bob has done a pretty good job providing us with historical context to the story of St. Nicholas and the present-day Santa Claus that uh, gets a lot of hype this time of year. So I won't be adding anything to that particular topic. However, if we are to believe the modern-day song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and what it, its message to us is, Santa apparently is more concerned about our behavior so that he can see who's been naughty or nice than our hearts. This is not the case with Jesus. I did hesitate uh, when I was a... I did pick this topic, but seeing the, the title of the uh, topic that I was uh, taking, I was hesitating the use of this particular title because I don't want you to misunderstand and think that I'm saying that Jesus doesn't care about our behavior. I don't, script, I don't think scriptures would support that premise. You can usually tell a lot about a person by their behavior. If someone is insulting, argumentative, or angry all the time, then it's probably because they're angry inside. If someone is deceptive or lies frequently or doesn't have a problem with taking something that doesn't belong to him or her, then there are reasons to assume that the person is dishonest on the inside. But if a person is kind, considerate, helpful, and gracious, you have reason to believe that the person is loving on the inside. We would probably say of this person that he or she is a good person. I do believe, however, that it is entirely possible for a person to be a religious person or kind-hearted, or very giving, well-liked, or a good person, and yet be someone who is spiritually dead and facing an eternity in hell. 
You can be Mother Teresa, for those of you who even know who she is anymore, and do all the great charities that she's been credited for doing. But if she lacks salvation, and I don't know that she did, it does not change her eternal future. The Bible gives us some examples of people that would reflect this in the New Testament. The Pharisees come to mind, and apparently most of the leaders of Israel at the time of Christ. They all thought themselves to be very religious and righteous. But what does Jesus say concerning them? He condemned them. He called them hypocrites, blind guides, and whitewashed tombs. We don't use those terms very much in today's language, but I'm thinking those were not good titles. They believed that they could use their positions and merits to secure their eternal future. They used their actions to try and impress those around them and themselves. But Jesus saw through to their hearts. According to the Vines Expository Word Dictionary, the Greek word used in the New Testament for heart has come to stand for man's mental and moral activity, both in the rational and the emotional elements. When the Bible addresses the heart, it is essentially meaning the whole man with all his attributes, physical, intellectual, and psychological, and the heart was conceived of as the governing center of all of these. It is the heart which makes a man what he is and governs all his actions. Do you remember the rich young man that Jesus had an encounter with in Judea? That's recorded in Matthew chapter 19. Let me read it to you from verse 16. It says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? I would think that is potentially a question that every one of us may have sometime in our life. Especially if we could talk to Jesus in person like this man did. And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And it says, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This rich young man came to Jesus and was trying to assure himself that he was going to paradise because of his actions. 
But Jesus very quickly exposed the young man's true heart and found that he was not blameless according to the law that he claimed to adhere to, that he was guilty of loving possessions in himself more than others. It was also revealed that he lacked true faith because he was unwilling to surrender all to Jesus' bidding. He believed that he could work himself into eternity by his merits. This man was probably well known to those in his community as a good man. But when Jesus exposed his heart, he was found to be lacking. Jesus' message to the world was always that he cares more about people's hearts than their external actions. Now listen, this doesn't mean that actions don't matter, but that right actions are an overflow of a heart that is right with God. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every man or every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Who weighs the heart? God. God is the one who knows the truth about the motives of the heart. And all of our excuses for failing to do what is right. He knows the truth. He knows our heart. In Matthew 15, beginning with verse 18, Jesus explains the meaning of a parable to his disciples and said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. I believe one of the things that Jesus is saying in this passage is that the true person is revealed by whatever is in that person's heart. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? He emphasizes the need that it, for a changed heart by reminding his readers in the book called Jeremiah of our heart's conditions apart from God's grace. Born in sin, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. An unredeemed person, regardless of his, position, his positive actions to those around him is still the wicked, sinful, lost soul that lies within. The heart is the seat of the conscience. It's naturally wicked because of sin and therefore it contaminates the whole life and character of a person. That is why before a person can willingly obey God, his or her heart 
must be changed, or to use a scriptural word, regenerated. Regeneration is to mean rebirth. It was what Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. It's the initial step in our salvation process that is solely accomplished by God through His Holy Spirit. John 1, verses 12-13 through 13 reads, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. No one becomes a child of God unless God himself brings about a new birth in that person's life. In Galatians chapter 5, we have a list of sins that characterize an unredeemed person. We're very familiar with the fruits of the Spirit that are there, and we'll read those in a minute. But just before that is a list of what an unredeemed person looks like. Now, the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, of course, not every person will exhibit all of these. I would imagine most of us have not physically murdered anybody. But all that the flesh does manifest itself in obvious and certain ways. And these come out in different ways. As uh, Jesus said, and, and uh, Bob mentioned last week with, the thought of if you had anger in your heart, you've murdered. If you've had lust in your mind or uh, about a, a, another woman who you're not married to, then you committed adultery. Even though you may have never done it physically, you did it in your heart. The chapter does go on to describe the characteristics of a redeemed person. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. These are godly attributes that characterize the lives of those who are saved and possess the Holy Spirit in their lives. That's what you should look like if you're a Christian today. Exhibiting these things, these attitudes. Both types of persons mentioned in Galatians 5. And you are one or the other of those persons. Live according to what is in their hearts. Their behaviors and actions, our behavior and actions will reflect who we really are inside. While we might be able to fool people for a short time in the hope of getting on added to Santa's nice list, 
your true self will eventually come out and be exposed. So how do we carry on in our Christian walk in a manner that is consistent with what is in our hearts? First of all, as the title of being a Christian or the name being a Christian implies, you must be saved for any of this to make sense or to be able to be accomplished in your life. As an unsaved person, you will never be able to live out the fruits of the Spirit because the Spirit is not in you. It's not enough to be born into a Christian family. It's not enough to be raised in a homeschooled family that you're going to church every Sunday and being taught Bible studies and Bible uh, scriptures throughout the whole time. That won't save you. Attending church regularly is not enough. There, there is a general um, comfort, if you will, that even an unsaved person can have by coming to church regularly and have a, a sense of peace because of it. But it doesn't mean that person's saved. Following the rules as the rich young man claimed to have done. It's not enough. You must be born again. If you are saved, then you also have the Holy Spirit in you to change you and sanctify you and encourage you and to help you and all the other works of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. By living consistently in our obedience to God's law and will in our lives, we will reflect in our actions what is in our hearts. But this can be something that takes place while we're experiencing great difficulties in our lives. All those situations that we can, that can make life hard and um, difficult to be able to be strong and consistent. We have many people in this church that deal with physical health problems and loss of loved ones, uh, you know, financial needs, various things that have taken place that can make living out the Christian life hard, especially at times. Look at some of the great list of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, 11. Many of them dealt with great struggles and trials in their lives if you go back and read about them in the Old Testament. We also have a perfect example of how a human life should be lived in Jesus Christ. He is our example of obedience and endurance regardless of the temptation that we may experience to slow down or to give up. He's also our example on how to persevere. 
so that he might receive the joy of accomplishing the Father's will and exaltation. Hebrews 12 that we read this morning for the scripture reading, beginning in verse 1, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews is concluding a section of his letter here that includes the great chapter of faith in chapter 11, where we're given a list of deceased witnesses from the Old Testament records. And he says, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that show, help show us the value and blessing of living by faith, of carrying on and being consistent in how we live. There's value and blessing in doing that. The writer then encourages his readers to make preparations and to run a race that is the faith-filled life that each believer has before them. And the times around the founding of the Christian church, when this was written, Racers would strip off anything from their bodies that would hinder or potentially slow them down. They were even known to run nude so that there'd be absolutely nothing that would potentially interfere with them. There would be no encumbrances. In using this parallel of a race to the Christian life, the writer is indicating that this life is demanding and strenuous, that is work. If you have ever run a race for competition, you know, although I do know a few people that seem to really enjoy running, <laughs> but you know it is strenuous. It's work. There's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of effort involved. And that's what's being compared to the Christian life. It can be a struggle. But it is set before each Christian to do. Some will not complete the race very well. Some will barely cross the finish line. And others will complete it well to the end. That should be our goal. When you run a race, you don't have in your mind, all I want to do is finish. I just want to show up at the end. doesn't matter what my position is. If, if that's your mindset, you will never win that race. It goes against everything that they try to teach you about running a race to win. Our goal should be looking at this life and looking at completing it, whatever time God gives us in our Christian walk, but to win it and complete it well. To live our lives to the fullest of God's will and to live it well. 
And we have Christ to look to for how to live and complete that task. He's our example. He's the founder of our faith. The originator or the preeminent example, this text tells us. The perfecter, the one who finished his task in perfect completion. He's the one who found joy in obedience to the Father to go to the cross and face shame. He endured it to the end and now He is seated at the right hand of the Father. So you think about your own life and the circumstances that you may be struggling with, maybe disabilities, maybe... um, Whatever it could be. I mean, it's unlimited what we struggle through in life. Just think about what Jesus also struggled through. And that he ended it and completed it to the end well. He completed the whole work perfectly. We can do that in our own lives. He's the one who found joy and obedience to the Father to to the cross and face shame. I, I, whenever, whenever you th- even think about what Jesus went through for our salvation, it, it should bring tears to your eyes. But it should bring joy and, and hope and excitement too. We too are called to endure and persevere in this Christian walk regardless of the circumstances that we face. And because of our salvation, and because of the Holy Spirit in us, because of our great example, Jesus, we can have joy from our hearts being right with God and having not our righteousness, which the Pharisees and the leaders were trying to have, but His righteousness. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not know Him, or though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you want this in your life? Are you here today thinking maybe how desperate or lonely or angry or empty your life may be? There's something that can be done about that. There's Jesus. If you want someone to pray with you or speak with you at the end of the service, I invite you, if you're in that position, to to come and grab me at the end of the service. I would love to spend some time with you. But maybe you're here this morning and you just feel weighed down by all of the encumbrances that you have picked up in this life. and You struggle with being joyful. There's Jesus. I invite you also to come at the end of the service. and We'll have someone sit down and talk with you and pray with you. 
Joy is something that I think many people wish they had. But if you're a Christian, you do have it. You just need to understand it better. You just need to understand how to have it more in your face, if you will, so that you can experience it. And and Bob said, it's not like you go through life with a fake grin on and laughing all the time. And it's not that type of joy. It's the joy that comes from knowing that the battle is won, that Jesus has saved you, that your eternity is secured, that He's with you and will get you through anything and everything that you're struggling with. You can have joy in that. You can have joy in the sense that there's nothing that the enemy can do to you to drag you down and take away what Jesus has secured for you can never happen. There's joy from that. If you're not experiencing that as a Christian, then we do need to talk. We do need to help you through that. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. As we start going into the time of communion. But I think this morning.